Good morning. It is said that the Old Testament points us to Jesus. And today, as we go over Psalm 2, I would say in full agreement that this passage is ultimately about him. Yes, if we were to view this passage just historically, it'll most likely be about King David's coronation for Israel. But this passage goes way beyond any earthly king, but speaks of the king of kings that is reigning over this world. I bring this up as well because for today, I'll be speaking about this passage from the vantage point of how it relates to Jesus. With that being said, please open up your Bibles to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, As we come before you at this time, Lord, we pray that our eyes would be open to Christ and that we would turn to him and that we would find our refuge in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Four points from today's passage. Point one, the rebellion of man. Point two, God's reaction. Point three, God's order or his decree. Point four, God's mercy. Let us begin. Point one, the rebellion of man. As we look at Psalm two, it begins with the rebellion of man towards God. And it is not individuals or groups going against God, as we read in Psalm one, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers. But in Psalm 2, it further highlights the complete depravity of man by showing how nations, kings, and its rulers are also involved in the rebellion and insurrection of God. 
in verse 1, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Rage here means to say, means to make a noise by a large group of people expressing their violent agitation. We see this rage in Acts 7, where Stephen, who was one of the seven chosen by the apostles to care for the needs of the Hellenists, speaks out against the Jews that have rejected Christ. And when the people hear his speech, in their rage, it says in verse 57 and 58, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him and stoned him. Or in Luke chapter 23, the people are crying out for Jesus to be taken away and for Barabbas to be released, the one who was caught for insurrection and murder. And we see the people's rage in verse 20 and 21, where it says, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! Is this not insanity? For where does the breath of man come from? Isaiah 42, verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it. It is God who gives us our breath. And in our wickedness, we use this very breath to rage against him. This rage, this anger, this hatred towards God is not just temporary. But in verse 2, it says, the kings of the earth set themselves, which means they are determined, resolute, unwavering in their opposition towards God. The verse continues and says, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed in verse 1, it said that the people plotted in vain. But in verse 2, the rulers are now involved. As well in devising and plotting together on how they can go against the Lord and his anointed. Let's pause right there. Who is the anointed one that is being described here? As spoken earlier, this might be King David, who was anointed by God to be king over Israel. But as mentioned, this psalm points us to a greater king whose name is Jesus. The king that is mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And he, the everlasting king in Scripture, is referred to as the anointed one. In Hebrew, the Mashiach translated the Messiah. In Greek, the Christos translated 
the Christ. So every time we say Jesus Christ, we are saying Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus before the 11 apostles after his resurrection in Luke 24, verse 44 to verse 45, says this to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So going back to our text in verse 2, the people's rebellion, their insurrection, is about going against God and God the Son, Jesus Christ. And what is it that the people desire in their rebellion? It is their lordship. They want to be lord over their own lives. They do not want God telling them how to live their lives. In verse 3, it says, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The people and its leaders wanted to throw off God's commands, His ways, His laws. They want to live according to their will, their desires, whatever they believe is right in their own eyes. This was the case when Adam and Eve sinned against God. And this has been the story throughout history. But let's bring it home now. For we also see in our days, leaders and nations of this world going against God and his ways. They rage, they plot, they set themselves and take counsel on how to go against God and to get rid of his ways. They try to tell us as if they were the creator of when life begins and when it's okay to murder an unborn child. They put rules and regulations in place threatening us that if we don't use their pronouns, we can lose our jobs. They tell us that the institution of marriage that God designed does not need to be between man and woman. And even in the schools, little children are being taught because of policies that have been made to call what God calls sin to be good and to be accepted. Point one, man's rebellion. I have spoken to you about the sins of the nations, the peoples, the kings, and the rulers. I hope during your listening, you have not distanced yourself from them. For we all have been a part of the rebellion and insurrection against God. Hear what scripture says, Ephesians 2.3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, 
for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We, just like Barabbas, the one the people wanted to be released rather than Jesus, are guilty of insurrection, wanting to overthrow the authority of God in our sins. We, just like Barabbas, have blood on our hands, for it is our sins that Christ died for on the cross. So may I encourage you, continue to listen. Do not check out as we move on to point two, God's response. What is God's response in the insanity of man in this passage? It says in verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He scoffs at their rage, their plotting, their determination, and their counseling among one another. For they are blind and foolish to think that they can go against the sovereign and mighty God. Back in 2019, North Shore Baptist Church was a part of a church softball league. We were one of the best teams in that league. Some would say that we were stacked. We even made it to the championship game that year, but we did fall short. In that same year, in 2019, the Washington Nationals were crowned World Series champions by defeating the Houston Astros. Now, if North Shore decided to challenge the Washington Nationals to a baseball game that year, the Nationals would scoff at us. Their fans would scoff at us. You would scoff at us. For there would be a 0% chance of us having any hope in defeating the Nationals. I know this is a poor illustration, for I am trying to give you an analogy through baseball that shows how foolish the people are for going against God. For what is nations and peoples before God? Isaiah 40, 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. James 4.14, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. After God is done laughing, his next response in verse 5 is, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Amongst the many attributes of God, God is a God of wrath. Jorge Perez reminded us of this in his sermon this past September, that God's wrath is holy, and his wrath is just. For we have provoked God in our sins. We, like the Israelites mentioned in Psalm 78, 41, have tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. And what is it that God speaks in his wrath in verse 6? He says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I love how in the New King James Version it reads, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, you rage, you plot, you set yourselves and take counsel together 
But God's response in his wrath is, yet, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. What you desire to prevent, God has done. God the Father has appointed his king, and his king's name is Jesus. The one who will reign over all nations, over all leaders, over all his enemies, and over all his people. When I play my son Isaiah in chess, there will be times when I think I'm doing well. I'm strategizing and making moves. But then he'll make a move that will end all moves. And then he will say those famous words, checkmate. Notifying me that my defeat is imminent. I can be upset inside. I can try to make additional plans. I can even call his friend Nathan and ask, is there anything I can do? (laughs) But there is absolutely nothing else that can be done. Victory has been declared, and God has made his move that ends all moves for his enemies and signifies their defeat. He has declared, Jesus is king. I believe it's often natural for worries, fears, and doubts to set in when we turn on the news and hear of what's going on in this world. When we see and hear the anger of men and women as they rage and shout threats against those who are trying to obey God, or when laws and policies are passed by governments or institutions that opposes the ways of God's commands, or when we hear of an entire country willing to imprison and execute you because of your faith in Christ. It was reported last year that 5,621 Christians were murdered. 2,110 churches were attacked. 4,542 Christians were detained because of reasons related to their faith. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of these horrors, may we not live in the fear of man. Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Or may we not be taken off guard, for as lawlessness increases, the love of many will grow cold. Matthew 24, verse 12. But instead of fearing man and being taken off guard at the insanity of this world, may our minds trust and be set on Jesus, whom God the Father has set as the victorious King. Isaiah 26, verse 3 and 4. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground cast it to the dust. Point three, God's order, his decree. In verse seven through nine, 
the authorship changes within this psalm, and we get to hear directly from the anointed one. It says in verse 7, I will declare the decree the Lord said to me. Jesus is saying, I am going to proclaim what God the Father has spoken to me, which is in verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The phrase, you are my son, is the first time in the Old Testament that speaks of the father and son relationship within the Trinity. One commentator states, you are my son, according to the Hebrew usage, and according to the proper meaning of the term, is that he, Jesus, sustained a relation to God which could be compared only with that which a son among men sustains to his father. And that the term as thus used fairly implies an equality in nature with God himself. That was a long quote, but let me put it together for you. God the Father is declaring that Jesus is his son, who is equal in nature to him. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And it also says in verse 7, Today I have begotten you. Begotten you does not mean that Jesus has been created as some false religions will proclaim. But begotten most likely refers to when Jesus was manifested to this world as the Son of God. Acts 13, verse 32 and 33 and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, the psalm that we're reading right now. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The resurrection of Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus was truly the Messiah, the Son of God. John Calvin writes this, Finally, this begetting ought not to be understood of the mutual love which exists between the Father and the Son. It only signifies that he who had been hidden from the beginning in the sacred bosom of the Father and who afterwards had been obscurely shadowed forth under the law was known to be the Son of God from the time when he came forth with authentic and evident marks of sonship, according to what is said in John 1.14, we have seen his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus continues his account of what God the Father has spoken to him. Verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. The authority for Jesus to have dominion, sovereignty over this world, rested on the condition that he asked, that he comes to the Father in prayer. And not only here, but throughout Scripture, we see how Jesus prays to his Father. John 17, 11, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, as even as we are one. 
Luke 22, verse 42, Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Luke 23, verse 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Albert Barnes, a theologian, on Ask of Me, from verse 8, says this, It may be added that as this wide dominion is promised to the Messiah only on condition that he asks for it or prays for it, much more is it true that we can hope for this and for no favor from God unless we seek it in earnest prayer. Brothers and sisters, may we also learn to earnestly pray to our Heavenly Father, pray for his name to be known, for the advancement of his kingdom, for the various needs in your life, for the forgiveness of your sins. And oh, how much more can we come to the Father in prayer? If God the Father says to his Son, ask of me, how wondrous and how amazing is the great privilege that we as well can come before the Father and pray and ask of him. As we continue to come to verse 9, remember the context. Jesus is declaring what God the Father has spoken in his wrath and fury. And in verse 9, it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash in pieces like a potter's vessel. God the Father has decreed, has ordered that his son shall be given the authority to exercise judgment on this world, on all those who rebel against him. Jesus will bring about the complete destruction of all his enemies as a potter's vessel is dashed to pieces by a rod of iron. When that day of judgment comes and you have not repented and believed in Christ, there will be no more chances for you. There will be no more hope for you. Charles Spurgeon, potter's vessels are not to be restored if dashed in pieces, and the ruin of sinners will be hopeless if Jesus smites them. Are you taken aback when you hear this about Jesus? For often when we think about Jesus, we think of his compassion, his love, his mercy, how he touched and healed the one who had leprosy, how he restored the sight of the blind, how he casted out demons, how he washed the feet of his disciples, and how Jesus describes himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, as gentle and lowly in heart. Yes, this is all true. And at the same time, Jesus has been enthroned as king that will destroy and send all those to hell who remain in rebellion against him. 
Revelations chapter 19, verse 15 and 16. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Point four, man's response. What should man's response be in light that God's king, his son, has been enthroned and has been given the decree by his father to exercise judgment? It says in verse 10, Now, therefore, how sweet it is that there is a therefore in this passage. Therefore, do not wait or linger for this moment that you have heard of the judgment of Christ is also an act of his mercy. He is giving us this time to heed and to respond appropriately, quickly to his warning. Hear these commands of God and his mercies within them. Verse 10, he commands, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Be wise to know that you kings who have set yourself against God, you are on a path to destruction and hell, so be wise. No longer go down that path, but repent and turn away from your foolishness. Verse 10 continued, Be warned, O rulers of the earth. John Gill, another theologian, says, to be warned, to be instructed, the word may be rendered, be ye chastised or corrected. That is, suffer reproof, correction, and chastisement at the hand of God. Whether by words or deeds, submit to it patiently and receive instruction from it. For God sometimes reproves kings and princes of the earth on accounts of their sins and for the sake of his people when they should learn righteousness. Rulers are commanded to be willing to be corrected and chastised by God, to submit to him and be used by God for the good of his people. Before we move on, let me bring attention that these verses are speaking directly to kings and rulers. But as stated earlier, do not check out. Nevertheless, there's still an importance to know that kings and rulers are being addressed here. As one commentator puts it, because their authority and example would have great influence on their people and inferiors. When I was reflecting on these commands to kings and rulers, I realized that often when I think of government and its leaders, I often have a tendency to become pessimistic, doubtful, and I do not pray for the leaders of this nation and the nations of this world as I should. But as it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, 
intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Brothers and sisters, may we pray, may we ask God that our leaders of this world would come to repentance, that they would believe in the Lord and act accordingly for the glory of God. And church, as you see all that's going on in this world right now, how much more should we be praying for our leaders? Moving on, God commands in verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Let's think about that one. Can one fear and rejoice at the same time? Yes, for the Bible tells us so. Proverbs 28, verse 14, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. And in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always, Again, I will say, rejoice. Charles Spurgeon, in regard to our verse on fear and rejoicing, states it this way. There must ever be a holy fear mixed with the Christian's joy. This is a sacred compound yielding a sweet smell. And we must see to it that we burn no other upon the altar. Fear without joy is torment, and joy without holy fear would be presumption. Let me say that again. Fear without joy is torment, and joy without holy fear would be presumption and arrogance, a disrespect. Brothers and sisters, we are called to live this life in the fear of the Lord, having a constant reverence and awe of him, and having a healthy fear, not to offend our God and to continue to live our life in sin. And at the same time, we are called to rejoice always, not because of our circumstances, but for those who are in Christ, we can rejoice because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. He has conquered over our sin and death. And for those who believe in him, there is nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And because of him, we can always rejoice. The next command that God gives in our passage in verse 12 is kiss the son meaning submit and pledge your allegiance to Jesus as king. Some of you might be here and say that you believe in God, but have not submitted to him as Lord. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Is God the Lord over your life, 
Or are you just living life saying you believe and instead of God being your Lord, you are the Lord over your life? Have you submitted to Christ? Are you striving to obey his commands? Is he Lord over the decisions that you make? Is he Lord in your marriages and how you parent? Is he Lord over the things that you watch and the things that you do? If not, submit yourself before God. Kiss the son can also mean to love, adore, and worship him as a woman in Luke 7. The one who was called a sinner hears of Jesus reclining with one of the Pharisees. And it says in verse 37 and 38, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Brothers and sisters, we are not only called to be wise, to be warned, instructed to fear, to rejoice, but also to submit, adore, love, and worship the Lord. In verse 10, I mention that the now therefore is a demonstration of God's mercy. He is giving us this brief moment in time to hear his warning, to hear his commands, and to turn from our wickedness and to obey him. And we must not be foolish or prideful to think that this extension of his mercy will be forever. For in verse 12, it says, lest he be angry. The word lest should hopefully awaken us, that his mercy will one day come to an end. And if you are still in rebellion against God, you will perish in his wrath. Some of you who are here today have heard the gospel many times, but still choose to close your ears and to reject it. Some of you have foolishly thought, one day I'll believe in God and obey him. But for now, I'll live my life the way I choose to live. Friends, do not toy with your life. Do not toy with eternity. Do not toy with God. Repent and believe in the Lord now. Cry out to God. Cry out for his mercy now. May today be the day of your salvation. This psalm concludes as Psalm 1 begins, describing the one who is blessed. Verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. From this psalm, we've heard of the rebellion towards God. We've heard of God's response. We've heard of God's decree. And we've heard of the mercy that God extends. And blessed are you after hearing all of this. You turn to Jesus and you find your refuge in him.
Jesus, our Lord, who sits enthroned on Zion, was also the one who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. Jesus, the one who will one day come back and will pour out his wrath, is the same son who on that cross took on the wrath of God, the wrath that we deserve. And he died and rose and now reigns as our victorious king. And for those who believe in him, you are covered by the king's righteousness. You are covered from the king's wrath. So blessed are you if you have taken refuge in him. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let us pray. Oh, great God, Lord, it is not important the words that I have spoken, but what is important is your words, your truth, your gospel. And I pray, O oh, Heavenly Father, that you would be merciful, that, Lord, that you would call many to believe and trust in you, O oh, Lord. Help us through your spirit, O oh Lord. Lord, I pray that your church would go about this day fearing you and rejoicing in you and delighting in you, knowing that you are the victorious King. Thank you, O oh Lord, for your great mercy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.